The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Heroic culture. Let's remember who we're hearing from as we listen to Philippians. Who wrote this? The Apostle Paul. He was claimed, really, by the resurrected Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul hated Jesus and hated Christians, and Jesus met him and changed his heart and opened his eyes and won him. And so Paul has been arrested for preaching the news of Jesus. He's, as we read Philippians, Paul is in house arrest in Rome. He's probably chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier. Execution has been a possibility, though he thinks he will be released. So we've been amazed, haven't we, that despite his very, very difficult circumstances, he doesn't write a letter full of despair and bitterness. Rather, it's a letter full of what? Joy. It's full of joy. How can this be? And we've seen, haven't we? We've discovered that ultimate joy is found in knowing the person of Jesus Christ. That's just it. Ultimate joy is knowing the person of Jesus Christ. It's knowing what Jesus has done for you, that he came and took on flesh and lived a perfect life for you in your place and died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead so that all who trust in him could be forgiven of all their sins, adopted by the heavenly father as a child. That's our worth. That's our value to be in Christ, to know him. And when you love Christ like that, you want to then live so that you honor Christ in everything that you do. You want others to see the beauty of Jesus in how you live. And so that's what Paul's been talking about it, right? He said, whether, whether life or death, I want Christ honored in my body. Your body is what you do stuff with, what you think, how you feel, what you see, what you say, what you accomplish. And Paul wants everybody to see that Jesus is most valuable to him in how he lives. Jesus is a joy. And then Paul even said, and we saw it last week, death is gain. That shocking idea. I mean, death. what do you lose at death? Everything. Except you gain one thing. And Paul said, I want to be, and I love this phrase so much, with Christ. And that's about relationship. And that's about affection. And that's about getting close to this beautiful, glorious person, Jesus Christ, and knowing his love and loving him. That's gain. And so Paul says, this is my joy. To live is Christ. I want to honor him with everything. To die is gain. That's what I'm all about. And of course, this isn't just for apostles, is it? This is for you. This is what you're made for. This is what God is doing in the world to reveal it, to, to let you have this ultimate joy in a relationship with Jesus who has loved you and has saved you. So we've seen Paul share all this, kind of the depths of his heart and what he values. The channel changes as we hit verse 27, because after sharing these, these deep passions and concerns that he wants us to have, he then switches to, and this is how I want you all to live. This is how you need to live together. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So basically it goes like this. How should we live together when Jesus is our joy? How should we live together when he's what thrills us and motivates us? So it's such an important thing, because isn't that who we want to be as a church? I mean, we're nothing if we're not about Jesus. That's it. That's, that's the one thing. That's the precious thing. So how can we live if we want to be about Jesus? Well, it's, it's like this. Look at verse 27. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel, of course, is <clears throat> that good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's the declaration of his person of his invitation. And so Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It's very interesting here, though, that Paul, I guess through all three of these verses, uses rather strange or unique words. So you get your nerd on a little bit, you're studying the text. The word for live here in verse 27 is not at all the normal word Paul uses for things like this. He uses a, um, a particular word, it's only used twice in the New Testament, from which we get our English word, listen up, politic. Anybody heard that one? Politic. Well, what is that? It's the idea of community life together, ultimately. Community life together. Now, why would he choose this unique word for this context? Well, it would really resonate 
with the Philippian church. Let me try to explain that to you. Philippi was a colony of Rome. And so the people in that city were citizens of Rome. And they were very proud of this fact. And you can see it if you read in Acts 16. Acts 16 is a story of when Paul goes to visit the city of Philippi. When Paul is arrested by accusers there in that city, this is what they said. Look at Acts 16, 21. This is the accusers' um, condemnation of Paul. Acts 16, 21. They, that's Paul, advocate customs that are not lawful for what us as romans isn't that interesting they are a long way from rome and yet how do they consider themselves we're romans it just shows you that the city took a lot of pride in being a Roman colony and in taking part in Roman culture. And that's what this word, this word with politic in it, would remind the Philippians of. It's this value of a Roman cultural vision where you are honored to have this citizenry that's, that's better than any other citizenry on the globe. And you're part of this collective, this community with shared values. And so you, the idea goes, as an individual, you should be your best, but really you just do that for the sake of the group, because it is a privilege to be Roman. It comes with benefits and responsibilities. This is tracking with the mindset of people who live in the city of Philippi. And yet Paul subverts this, doesn't he? He basically tells the church that they should live this politic of the gospel. So what he's saying to them is, you have a deeper citizenry now. A better citizenry now. You are citizens of the gospel. This is who you are. We see this later in Philippians 3.20. Look how Paul talks there, Philippians 3.20. But our, what? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So we remember here, when Jesus saves you, he does save you individually, but he saves you to a community that then becomes committed to living out his character. Jesus saves you to a community that becomes committed to living out his character. When you love Jesus the most, when you, when you see what he's done for you, he saves you and he makes you a citizen of his kingdom. And he combines you and puts you together with other citizens. It forms a new politic, a new community with new values, a new culture. It's the culture of the gospel. And that's how we're supposed to live. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So as we live together and work together, gospel themes should be emulated. Gospel ideas should be glowing. And it is heroic. Because what's the core, when you think of a hero, what's the core idea? You're giving yourself up for others. What did Jesus do to enable you to be a citizen of his kingdom? He gave himself up for you, specifically on a cross, to win you to himself. And so when you're thrilled by his love for you, that he gave himself up for you, and you come together with other people who love that, guess what we start doing together? We start giving ourselves up for others. Heroic culture. A mindset because the one, the one gave himself up for me, and I have everything I need in him now. I want to start doing that as well. That's how we want to live. A citizenry, a new citizenry. So Paul is saying, hey, don't just be Roman. Don't be Philippian. Be Christian. Live in this new value, this new culture. What would he say to us? Don't just be American, or however you label that part of your life. Don't just be that. Move higher. Go deeper. If you found joy in Jesus, live as a citizen of the gospel. Identify yourself that way. Move in that way. And that's going to be a joyful life in the present. That's what happens when we find our joy in Jesus. We start being part of this new group, this new community. And the way you do that, of course, the best is with the local church. So you've got a heroic culture. What, what are some ingredients of a heroic culture? We'll look now at the heroic unity. 
Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. Let's think about those next three words. In one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. You can get the idea. Are we supposed to all be independent, lone ranger Christians doing our own thing by ourselves all the time? No, that's not what Christ has called us to. He's called us to unity. And he says you're you're to stand firm in one spirit. Again, this word would have uh, rung out to the Philippians, the idea of standing firm. They would have thought of Roman troops in battle uh, holding a position together under duress, but not giving up. They're going to stand firm despite the opposition. And the only way they can do that is if they do it in one spirit, is if they do it with unity. Church, what do we need to live a joyful present together, a joyful now? We need unity. It's interesting to note that despite how just Paul loved this church so much and they had so many great things about them, but they had one major problem that you see uh, rearing its head throughout the letter, and that is they really struggled with unity. Look at Philippians 2.14. What does Paul say there? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And why do you think he throws that out there? Probably because they were grumbling and disputing. Disputing. How does that make Jesus look when Christians are grumbling and disputing? Jesus gave himself up for me. I'm so full of his love. And I think you're a jerk. You're not living in a manner worthy of the gospel. You're not really joining the new community or the new culture. We need a heroic unity. It was so bad in Philippians, he actually calls out two ladies. Now he says later on, they've labored for the gospel. These are Christian ladies and they're heroes. He loves them. But they're not being consistent in how they live out the gospel. Look what he says to them, Philippians 4.2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, wouldn't you love it if you were a Christian worker, you got your name in the Bible, and forever you're remembered for not being able to get along with your sister in Christ. I wonder if they, you know, up in heaven, they drink coffee together every time a new series in Philippians begins, you know? There it goes again, sister. Everybody remembers. It just shows you how easy it is to not have unity. Uh, even among people who love Jesus. And so Paul insists in this letter, you must strive for a heroic unity. And I mean heroic. Here's the problem with American version of heroism. The American version of heroism, you think of a scenario of utter crisis. A shooter enters the building. The nuclear bomb is about to explode. There's this moment of utter crisis. You're thinking of some Tom Cruise moment. You're also thinking of a, scenario, of, a, of a hero with exceptional physical strength or skill. He makes the, the run or the jump or the whatever. So you, this utter crisis, exceptional skill, and newsflash for most of us, if that's what it takes to be a hero. Our, 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 yeah, we're not going to be in situations like that most of the time. And we don't, we don't have expe- exceptional strength or skill. So heroism, sorry, it's not for you. It's just for the stories. Except that's not real heroism. That's not really what we need. We don't need more emergency heroes. You know what's far harder than coming through in the one crisis moment? It's coming through faithfully every day. Coming through faithfully every day. I'm reminded of a of a proverb says, uh, everybody proclaims their steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? Can you be a hero every day in the small moments? Because that's how we build unity. Look what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 1. 2, verse 1, we're going to look at this in more detail next week. If there's any encouragement in Christ, so you see what he's pleading with? <laughs> Does Jesus thrill you at all? Has he, are you amazed by his love? Has he brought you in? Are you, are, are you happy about that? Does this motivate you? If there's any encouragement in Christ, move into verse two. Complete my, my what? Joy, this is for joy right here. Joy in Christ by being of the same mind. There's the same phrase. 
Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. These are all different ways to say unity. And this is how you do it, and it's heroic. Verse 3, do, what's the next word? Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's hard. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. That's heroism. Every day, every moment, faithful heroism that comes from the ultimate hero. So if you love Jesus and he's your joy, a joyful now is a now that is together with his people where we have a gospel culture, a gospel citizenry, a heroic culture, and that heroic culture strives for a heroic unity. I think it's worth noting that obviously the Philippians knew one another pretty well, and so that brought opportunities for that unity to be stressed, which newsflash, anytime we hang out for longer than 30 seconds, it's going gonna, it's gonna to test our unity. Because we tend to be, we need, I know, heroic, you need to be courageous and selfless, and we tend to be afraid and selfish. Can I get an amen or am I alone in that? Yeah. We tend to be afraid and selfish. But for Americans and American Christians, sometimes our problem isn't that we're so together and have unity and it's always stressed. It's the idea that we don't even know one another and never have a chance to build anything like real unity. Now, we're at a smaller church, so that's harder to do. If you come here very long, we'll get to know each other. Praise God, that's one of the benefits of a smaller church. But a test for American Christians is, is your unity getting together for an hour once a couple weeks? There's no unity there. There's no standing together. There's got to be more of a community to that, doesn't there? Dive in to a heroic culture, citizenry, with a local church, your local church, and work for heroic unity. Let's look at number three. Our heroic culture will have a heroic teamwork. Heroic teamwork. <clears throat> 27. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for what? For the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Here's another word idea that would really stand out to the Philippians, strive. You've got a group of soldiers locking shields, moving forward, or the word could also be used for a team in a sports game. What, you know, have you ever played pickup basketball and you've got one guy who thinks he needs to shoot it 98% of the time? That illustration connected with you know, four of you. But you can get the idea where oh, we're playing a game, but we're not really a team, and you're probably going to lose, especially if you're playing a team that is actually functioning as a team. When teams function as teams, they tend to win. When they are, function, when they are focused on one kind of diva superstar, they get news clippings, but there's less success. And so Paul says, I want you to strive together as a team for this one goal. If it's a football team or a basketball team, what's the goal? To win. It's not about my stat or your stat or who's famous. It's let's win the game. What about if our team is a church? What does it look like to win for us? Well, we strive by, side by side for the what? For the faith of the gospel. What does that mean? How do you unpack the word faith? What does that mean? You can use the word in a couple of different ways, can't you? In one way, it can mean your personal trust. So if I ask you, have you put your personal trust in Jesus to save you? Have you put your faith in him? It's totally a valid, useful, important way to use the word. Uh, there's another way to use the word. We could say it like this, do you subscribe to the elements of the Christian faith? There I'm no longer talking about your personal trust. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the definitions that make Christianity Christian. What do you have to believe to be Christian? 
Jesus is the eternal son of God who took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead. That's Christian, right? That's it. in those boundaries. If you say, I don't believe those things, no offense, you're not Christian. The Christian faith, the definitions of what it means to be a Christian. So what do you think Paul here means, striving side by side but for the faith of the gospel? It's something like this. He wants the church to work together for both the clarity and the advance of what we believe in and through us. It was a long definition of faith. I'll give it to you again. He wants us to work side by side for the clarity of what we believe and the advance of what we believe in and through us. So I want it to be really obvious, Paul says, in you, the church, what the gospel is. And I want that gospel and its, and its implications to be working and changing you as individuals and as a community. And as that happens, I want it to work and change the outside world as well. I want people to see the clear gospel and know what it is and trust it as you grow in that together. Does that make sense? Strive side by side for this. And they will have to strive as a team because look what Paul says at the end of the, cha at the, end of the chapter. He says, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now still hear that I have. Why does he say this to the church? You remember, he's in prison, yeah? And he tells them, you're engaged in the same conflict. Here's the reality. What happens if you strive for the faith of the gospel? What's going to happen? There will be opposition. That's what's going to happen. There will be opposition. The gospel always faces opposition, whether it's from the individual who's hearing it the first time or from cultural forces. Why is that? Well, the lordship of Jesus feels threatening. I'm Lord and King. You're poor and needy. You need me to save you. The only way to find your joy is to submit to me. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? And a prideful heart feels threatened by that, doesn't like that. It's going to turn from that, and it's going to oppose that sometimes. And some of you, can you remember when you opposed the gospel before you believed? When you, when you were, get, get off me. The gospel faces opposition. And it's interesting to think about how the opposition comes because I think even in this book it's coming in two very important ways. Try to break it down simply. One way the gospel faces opposition is when the opposition says, Stop. Stop. Stop talking about this. Stop living this out. That's why Paul's in prison, right? What did they say to him as he preached the gospel? Stop. And what did he do? Preach the gospel. And so he faced opposition. He's in prison. Stop. But there's another way the gospel faces opposition, and it's a bit more dangerous. In fact, it's a lot more dangerous. This kind of opposition isn't stop. It's change. Change the gospel. The stop opposition says, stop talking about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and stop living like it. Change says, oh yeah, we like Jesus. But let's change this part about him. Let's change that part about what it means to live for him. Let's just change this a little bit. And so Paul is saying very clearly, and I think this is the emphasis for the Philippian church, stand firm for the face of the gospel. <clears throat> Excuse me, stand firm for the faith of the gospel in the faith of the in the face of those who want you to change it. I'll try that again. Stand firm for the faith of the gospel in the face of those who want you to change it. Let me show you. Look at Philippians 3.2. Philippians 3.2. It's going to be maybe the most serious part of this letter. Look what Paul says to them. <clears throat> Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Does that sound harsh to anyone? It sounds like a troop of zombies. It sounds like ultimate evil. You know who it is? They're just some teachers who want you to change the gospel. These teachers, as we're going to see, want you to change where you look for righteousness. They want you to look for your, to your law-keeping for being a good person instead of to Jesus. 
That doesn't sound that bad, does it? Oh, they're evildoers. Watch out, because they want to change the most beautiful and the most important thing there is, the gospel and the reality that you are totally right with God through faith in Christ alone. And they want to change it. And so Paul says, stand firm for the faith of the gospel, which means whether it's stop or change, we need to be a community that's heroic in standing firm for the clarity of what the gospel is and what it means and to live in the light of it. We've got to stand firm together, whether they say stop or especially if they say change. That doesn't mean we can't learn, right? It doesn't mean I'm never wrong in what I say or, or think. It doesn't mean I can't learn more truth and understand. It doesn't mean I shouldn't listen. But it does mean that we are not going to change the unchanging gospel for the whims of the cultural moment. And we're going to need each other for this, aren't we? Look, look how Paul says... Uh, the end of chapter 1, he says that you would not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Opponents can be frightening. I know this. They can be intimidating. If you imagine opponents stopping you or putting pressure on you to change. And again, the, the word Paul uses here is unique. This word frightened is, is a horse that's uh, shy or skittish. Here's a loud noise and uh, he's backing off. He's, a, he's afraid and he's, he's tender. He's not sure where to go. We can feel that way sometimes in opposition. Stop, change, and we feel insecure or timid about the gospel and what it means to live it. But Paul says, if you will come together as gospel citizens, knowing to whom you belong, and if you will come together in unity, holding fast together, then you will be able to stand with courage together when you face opposition. Some of you have given me so much courage when there was opposition. I was timid alone, and you made me stronger. And that's the idea together is, church, know what you believe. Know who you are. Live it out together and stand firm in the face of those who say stop. Stand firm in the face of those especially who say change. And it's heroic, isn't it? Is it heroic to stand for the gospel? There's a way you can do it, which is selfish. There's a way you can do it, which is prideful, obnoxious. That's no good. We don't want to be that way. But what does the world lose? What do we lose if we won't stand for the clarity of the gospel together? Do any of you value Jesus and knowing him and his love and being saved by him? Do you value him? Do you value the good news that you can be right with God through Christ by faith alone and not by earning it somehow? Do you value that? Is that sweet to you? Do, do you value sharing it with other believers? I value these things more than anything else. And, and does the world need what we have then it is truly, joyfully heroic to risk ourselves sometimes, to give ourselves up for the good of others in order to preserve the clarity and the beauty of the gospel. It's heroic. Stand together for the faith of the gospel. Joyful present means a heroic culture, heroic unity, heroic teamwork. How can we do this? How do we find this heart of courage? How do we find this motivation to selfless heroism? Well, you get it from the heroic gift. Look at verse 29, the heroic gift. Paul says, it has been granted to you. Granted to you. That's another unique word. It's, it, it's the idea of this generous, precious gift of grace. You have received an incredible gift. You have 
you have won the lottery. You have, you're so favored. You, your standing is so amazing. It's the feeling of this word. You have received this incredible gift. And this gift comes in two parts. Look at verse 29. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only, number one, what? Believe. 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 Um, do you believe in Christ? Have you seen his beauty? Have you seen what he's done? Has it melted your heart? Have you said, I trust that, I want that? Did you know that that belief was a gift? It was a gift. It was a generous gift. See, about the kindest thing God can do for you is to melt your hard heart and to open your blind eyes and to unstuff your deaf, your deaf ears so that you can see the true beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so you can see it. And so you can see that the Son of God really came to earth and took on flesh, humbled himself incredibly to win you so that you could see that his blood was shed on the cross to pay for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and that you can find a new identity greater than anything this world can offer in being a child of God through Jesus Christ. And you can have all of that not by working so hard or by erasing the past or by accomplishing some massive goal, but purely through trust in Christ. You if you believe that, you have been given a gift. And what was the cost? Who bought the gift for you? Jesus won that gift for you on the cross. He bought that gift and has given you the gift. Can you see the heroic gift that you belong to God through Christ? What a gift. This gives us courage, doesn't it? Does it give you courage? Do you have Christ and his love for you? Say they kill you. It's probably not going to happen in our setting, but say they kill you. What, what happens next? You get to gain and be with Christ. Courage comes from having this gift. Let's look at the second part of the gift. This one's a little more surprising. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also, you tell me, in case you don't believe me, Suffer for his sake. Is suffering a gift? Kinda. Kinda. As Christians, are we supposed to be people who pursue suffering for its own sake? Get kind of a martyrdom complex. Are we supposed to go after suffering? Well, no. Uh, in a way, suffering is our enemy. We want to alleviate others' suffering. We want to enjoy God's good gifts in the world. The Psalms and all sorts of other things are full of prayers. Lord, help me, deliver me from my suffering. We don't seek suffering and we don't like it for its own sake. But we also know something else. Suffering is used by God uniquely to make us more like Christ and to display Christ to the world. We never seek suffering. In God's sovereignty, we don't have to, right? <laughs> it will come anyway. It will come anyway. But it is a gift to suffer. What's the key phrase? For his sake. It's a gift to suffer for his sake. Do you believe that? You sort of do already. Remember when I asked you if you've ever fantasized being a hero? What did you do in that moment? In that idea of heroism. In that idea, you were willing to take a risk somehow. You were willing to make suffering a possibility relationally or physically or, or, or some other way for the benefit of others. And in that idea, I mean, I, I've had this thought before. If, if my child was, a, was going across the road and a truck was coming to run over him, and the only way to save him was to push him out of the way and let the truck hit me, would I do it? 
I'd do it with a smile on my face. It's a gift to love somebody like that. Now, do I live that in everyday life when the heroism is boring? <laughs> And it means putting myself aside to serve practically. I'm done with heroism at that time of day, right? I need trucks to be a hero. But I shouldn't. And so what the gospel is here trying to inspire is that you would so love Jesus that your suffering, what, I, I think it's really broad, whatever it could be, is then used as a stage to show the world how precious Jesus is. Because if you can say in your lostness, your loneliness, Jesus is the best and he's enough. If you can say, I won't stop living and believing the gospel no matter what you do to me. If you can confirm, as Paul says, the gospel when you're willing to suffer for his sake, when you're willing to set aside your own interests for unity, when you're willing to do that for Jesus, you spotlight how wonderful he is in a unique way. And if he's your joy and you love him, even though you don't like suffering at all, you'll say, you know what? It's worth it. It's a gift to suffer for his sake. If you love him, you'll taste that. Does that make sense? It's the heroic gift, both that you would believe and belong and also that you would suffer for his sake. And when we do that, church, it's a sign. Do you see that? Verse 28, this is a sign to them of your destruction, but of your salvation. When you are courageous in loving and trusting Jesus together, no matter what, it rings out as a sign. It shows you and me, it shows us, hey, I think I, think I might actually be a Christian. <laughs> Have you ever wondered that? Am I really a Christian? And then you see, you know what? I love Jesus and I'm willing to try to suffer for his sake. And it, it's a sign to you. You must really be a Christian. You're saved. You're being saved. You will be saved because you love and trust Jesus. Look at this. It's amazing. It's also a sign to them, the opponents, whoever they are. When you are courageous in loving Jesus, no matter what, and you can emulate his character, his kindness, his heroism, and giving self up for others, they see a sign of, did you see it? Their destruction. What do you think he means by that? Well, hopefully these people are going to see that they don't have whatever it is that's making us tick. They don't have a savior like this. They're disconnected from God, and they're in trouble, and they need him. Maybe they give him a second look. Maybe they look again because you were willing to honor Christ in any situation. You see, you see what Paul's doing here? When you love Jesus as your joy, it starts a heroic culture. We're citizens of the gospel. That stirs up in us a heroic unity. We want to be one together by setting aside our pride and selfish ambition, coming together. That brings a heroic teamwork. We want to strive together for the faith, for the faith of the gospel. And we can do that because of the heroic gift Jesus has given, that we can believe in him and have him and know him and even suffer for his sake. That, to Paul, is what a joyful life looks like now. Is that your definition of a joyful life? A heroic culture for Jesus. Let's think about two ways to apply this. Two ways to apply this. So evidently, we're gospel citizens with a gospel culture. We want to emulate the gospel. We want to act out the gospel. We want to show people the gospel. I'm going to give you two Practical ways we're told to do this in the Bible. Number one is in 2 Corinthians 8 9. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 9. Paul's writing to this church in Corinth. Does anybody remember what he's trying to get them to do? He's trying to inspire them to give money to the poor. It's not, a, it's not like a, only a spiritual thing here. He wants actual cash dollars to give to real people who are in physical, material need. Look how he motivates them. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see this unique angle on the gospel? What's one way to understand the gospel? It's the idea of riches. How rich was Jesus as the second person of the Trinity reigning forever in heaven? Beyond our verbosity, our abilities to describe. And what did he do for, we're in our poverty, spiritual poverty, broken, lost, alone. What did he do in his riches for the spiritually poor? What did he do? He became poor. He gave up his riches to take on human flesh and even go to a cross so that you could become rich. How spiritually rich are you? Oh, you just have Christ, God is your Father, and His inheritance forever? Can you be richer? Do you see? And so Paul uses this aspect of the gospel, rich to poor, to then motivate, hey, now you, church in Corinth, you have some material riches. And what, what does he want you to do with your material riches? Give it to the poor. And what's his motivator? The spiritual salvation motivates the physical and practical actions. Do you see it? This is a part of that gospel culture. We want to be gospel citizens. We want to be people who are thrilled that Jesus gave up his riches so that we who were poor could become rich. And that's going to motivate us not just to sing, sing away. I like to sing. But not just to sing, but also do what? Give cash dollars to the poor. In fact, if you value the spiritual aspect, you'll practice the practical aspect. Let me give you another one. Gospel culture, gospel citizenry. Look at Mark 10:45. For even the son of man came not to serve but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here's another picture of the gospel. It's the idea of setting people free from slavery. What does that word ransom mean? I'm going to buy you out. And this is our spiritual salvation, right? You were a slave to sin, to selfishness, to pride. You couldn't get out. You loved the wrong things. You were a slave. You were lost. And what did Jesus do for you? He set you free. By serving you, where? On the cross. Taking the same pattern, a spiritual reality being valued and then practiced in practical ways. What should we do for the poor, especially poor who are lost in slavery? If we love the gospel and how Jesus became poor for us to set us free, then what will we care about practically? Won't we want to give to set actual physical slaves free? Do you see how that fits in a gospel culture, a heroic community, where these aspects of the gospel are motivating us and moving in us? We announced today, didn't we? This is a practical application of being gospel citizens. We announced today that we're going to remember our partnership with International Justice Mission. Okay. International Justice Mission is more than 900 Christian folks, lawyers, investigators, social workers, pastors, all sorts of other things, and they work in a bunch of different communities throughout Africa, Latin America, South and Southeastern Asia. And their work is as effective as anything I've ever seen for rescuing slaves and bringing practical justice to the poor. Here's one example. IJM did a project once in a city in the Philippines to combat sex trafficking of minors. After five years of comprehensively working with all the stakeholders in the public justice system, independent auditors confirmed a 79% reduction in the number of minors in the sex industry. That's so massive. Do you think that pleases God? Does that echo priorities of the gospel, to love your neighbor and set people free. It does. 
and their work is still so important. Did you know that over 40 million people today are still held in slavery? There are more slaves on the planet right now than there has been any other time in history. Now, 40 million slaves, and one out of four is a child. Not only that, human trafficking generates about $150 billion a year, two-thirds from commercial sexual exploitation. How bad do we need work like International Justice Mission? Christians fighting for practical justice in the world. We need them bad. And look at this. Uh, in the last several years, more than 49,000 have been rescued through IJM from oppression. More than 67,000 justice system officials have been trained to recognize and respond to violence. More than 1,600 convictions against slave owners, rapists, and other criminals have been accomplished. That's good work. And so part of what I'm doing today is I'm letting you know again that we partner specifically with an IJM office in the Dominican, Dominican Republic. It's one of our biggest um, giving commitments and they specifically fight um, child sex trafficking. And so this picture up here now is a picture of Leanna, and she's a success story they gave to us to share. Leanna's story goes like this. Her mom was addicted, an addict, and disappeared. And when Leanna was 14, her mom appeared again out of nowhere and all of a sudden was happy and giving Leanna a great time. So Leanna went to live with her. And immediately her mom began to sell Leanna, and you can imagine how. Leanna's stepfather was a truck driver and drove her across the DR, selling her to men along the way. And then her stepfather's boss stole Leanna to be a, child's, a child bride. But speaking of heroism, the boss's mother met Leanna and got her back to her grandparents. Despite death threats, her grandpa reported the crime and that's when IJM workers were able to step in. They have their captors on trial. You can get an update of the story from the prayer cards we passed out to you. They got her to a safe house. They're providing her with counseling and therapy, and she's free. And she's recovering. Is that the kind of work we want to be connected with as gospel people? Yeah. Why? You can think of a lot of themes, right? Well, one's easy. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you were a slave, would you like someone to set you free? Yes. But it's more than that. I was a slave to sin. And Jesus set me free. You were a slave to sin and Jesus set you free. And he did that at great cost. He did that heroically. He gave himself up for the benefit of others. And so now in this small way, it's not the only way, but it's a good way, we can emulate the gospel. We can have more of a gospel culture as we give ourselves up. Now, how am I asking you to give yourself up? Do I want you to buy a sidearm and go to the Dominican, you know, with a flashlight? No, there's people better at this than we would be. But what I want you to do is I want you to give them your money. Because who pays for the, the training of uh, justice workers and the lawyers who stand faithfully in unjust systems and the, all the rest that goes into this work? Do you know who pays for international justice mission? The church. The church. And so it's a way, we want to partner with this, it's a way to glorify God and be a heroic culture because of the nature of the gospel, what it's done for us, and what it stirs up in us. Does that make sense? So, two ways I'm going to ask you to give. And I'm asking you to give to International Justice Mission today. One is, there's a web link right there. You can be a freedom partner. That would be the best thing. They call it being a freedom partner. The best way to give is a little bit every month over time. If you just think about giving here and there, I don't know about you, I forget. Become a freedom partner, you sign up, you give. I think the, the minimum they're asking for is $24 a month, and you support rescuing slaves. Or if you want to do a one-time thing, that's our special offering this morning, you put it in the white envelope, all that money will go to International Justice Mission. But do you understand why I'm asking you for it? Do you understand why we already do it as a church? 
It's a part of this gospel culture. It's a part of the clarity of the gospel and the echo of the gospel in our lives. Is it the only way to do that? No, there's millions of ways to do that. But it's a good way to do that. It's a good way. Second application, I told you I had two. Well, this one won't take long. We're going to take the heroic meal here in a moment. And what do you think I'm talking about there? It's the Lord's Supper. Can we call it a heroic meal? What, what, what are we doing? When you take the bread, what does it represent to you? Jesus' broken body. He gave himself up for you. When we drink the juice, what does it represent to you? Jesus' blood shed for you so that you could have his riches, so that you could be set free. It's a heroic meal. And for those who trust Christ, as you come up to grab it, as you sit and eat it, let's treasure our heroic Savior as our joy. And then let's also proclaim together as we do it that we want to be heroic in some small way, like he is. That we will give up ourselves for him and for others in his name. Amen? Let's pray. We'll take up our offering, then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we can only be amazed by Jesus and how he gave himself up for us. I pray that everybody would taste that and we would have Jesus as our great treasure that we would know in him we are forgiven, we are made someone, we are made the child of God, we have eternal riches. And I pray that that would form our culture, that we would, we would be citizens who live in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we would have great unity, that we would strive for the clarity of the gospel, the spread of the gospel, and that our character, our actions would echo these gospel themes. We thank you that we can give of the resources you have given us to bless others, and we thank you that we can receive as we take the Lord's Supper, receiving your love, your grace to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.